Well, hello, everybody. This is Rabbi Dan Levin, and this is Essential Questions. In J.R.R. Tolkien's master fantasy, The Hobbit, Bilbo Baggins is forced to answer a confusing riddle. This thing all things devours, birds, beasts, trees, and flowers, gnaws iron, bites steel, grinds hard stones to meal, slays kings, ruins town, and beats high mountain down. And the answer that Bilbo comes up with accidentally is time. And in many respects, time is the ultimate riddle. From the moment we awaken to consciousness until the moment of our last breath, we are given an allowance, precious moments, hours, days, years of life. It is the most sacred of gifts, just the gift of being, of being alive. For so many, those hours are beset by struggle. In our childhood, we live day to day, dependent on the care of others for our very being, And as we grow our capacities and ability to care for ourselves, we too enter into the struggle to feed and clothe and shelter ourselves, to find and perform work that will give us the resources to live. But if we can find the fortune and privilege to secure our needs and our safety, a fortune and privilege so many millions never find, our minds can turn to more spiritual questions. How do we want to use this gift of life? How can we endow our lives with meaning and purpose? How can we become moral agents, partners with God and each other to fashion a world of goodness and holiness? Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel wrote, There are no two hours alike. Every hour is unique, and the only one given at the moment, exclusive and endlessly precious. Judaism teaches us to be attached to holiness and time to learn how to consecrate sanctuaries that emerge from the magnificent stream of a year. In many ways, the advanced human project is how we can sanctify our lives, how we can elevate the human experience to a spiritual plane, to maximize our experience of human fulfillment. And in order to accomplish that task, we learn to sanctify time. We learn to fashion moments and occasions into rituals that propel us into holiness. How to do that best, how can we truly learn to sanctify time, is our essential question for today. And there is no one better to help us understand that task than Professor Rabbi Dr. Dahlia Marks. Rabbi Marks is the Rabbi Aaron D. Pankin Professor of Liturgy and Midrash at the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religions Family Campus in Jerusalem and teaches in various academic institutions in Israel and in Europe. She is a 10th generation Jerusalemite, having earned her doctorate at the Hebrew University and a rabbinic ordination at HUC in Jerusalem and in Cincinnati in 2002. She was the lead editor of the Israeli Reform Sidur called Tifilat Hadam, which was published in 2020. And her remarkable book that was published in Israel in 2018 has now been translated into English under the title From Time to Time. Journeys in the Jewish Calendar. It has been translated into several languages and is now available in English from the CCAR Press. And she is the author of several books on prayer and a feminist commentary on the Babylonian Talmud. Dahlia, thanks so much for being with us today. I really appreciate your time. 
Thank you very much, Rabbi Levine. So tell us a little bit about your own background. What sparked your interest as an Israeli in studying liturgy and holy days? Right. You know, I was raised in a, in a, what you would call a secular family. Uh, we did not attend the, the synagogue very often, maybe in high holidays. But uh, at a very early age, I felt a great attraction to our worship rituals, prayers. And uh, I found my way into the uh, liberal movement of, you know, the reform movement here in Israel because I felt that I cannot be seated behind a mechitza, behind a partition. Uh, um, but from a very young age, I, was, I felt a strong attraction to our ancient sources, to our wisdom, and especially to, to our worship, to our liturgy, to the ways in which we explain our existence to ourselves, to each other, to God. And that's what uh, attracted me to, to Jewish liturgy. Yeah, I'm talking to you now from Jerusalem, um, which is my hometown, as, as you mentioned. And these are very difficult times, very difficult days. And I think the liturgy, the prayers uh, serve as, as, as a means, as, um, as a coping device, as an anchor. And when we deal with the reality uh, that we're facing in this, uh, this time of war here. And I look forward to talking a little bit about sort of what spiritual experience in the midst of wartime looks like. But let's talk a little bit about holiness. What makes time holy? How do you lend holiness to a particular occasion? Right. I think when we, when we think about that, when we think about the holiness of time, we need to distinguish between two separate entities. Um, in the Jewish tradition. So first of all, we have Shabbat. Uh, according to our tradition, Shabbat uh, existed from uh, the creation of the world or, or even if we follow the Midrashic um, tradition before the creation of the world. The world, Shabbat was there as the uh, pivot, uh, pivot of creation or the, the, um, um, the reason for creation. God thought about Shabbat when he created the world. Um, but nevertheless, Shabbat is part of the cosmic experience that we have. Shabbat existed before the people of Israel stepped on the uh, map of the universe, right? So we have the sanctity of Shabbat that comes every seven days. And we have the festivals and, and um, special days within the year, which are of different um, character. They have a different fabric to them because according to our tradition, they were given to the people of Israel. In fact, the first mitzvah that we received from God, uh, we read it in Exodus 12, is Chodesh Hazelachem. This month unto you uh, shall be the, the first month. That is to say, when the Israelites were about to leave Egypt, to leave the house of bondage, when they be, uh, were about to become free people, the first thing that was given to them is time, right? Because if you're not free, you don't control your time. A free people designate its days, designate its calendar, designates its time. That and that's um, the, the the first thing that was given to us uh, in in our Torah. Um, and I think it also is many. It is also manifested beautifully in the liturgy because when we say the special blessing for Shabbat, the holiness of uh, Shabbat, the sanctity of Shabbat, the 
the ending of the bracha, which is the important part of it, the ending of the, the benediction is, Baruch Atah Adonai Mekadesh HaShabbat, blessed are you eternal who blesses the Shabbat. Right? Shabbat is, is, is standing, is a standalone being, as it were. But when we have the blessing for this festival, we say, Israel Vehazmanim. We, we, we bless God who gave Shabbat to Israel, and then we mention the, the designated times. That is to say, the festivals, the holidays, the marked days in our calendar were given to us, yes, to mark them, to designate them as we as we see fit. Shabbat is different. Shabbat is really part of the creation of the world. And if you want to zoom out a little bit, you see, you can see that both of them are dependent on different um, time frame, right? We have the 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 solar year and we have the lunar year. Uh, the solar year has 365 days, and uh, you know that's that's the time it takes uh, our planet Earth to go around the sun. And we have the lunar year, which is the the the, the time of the month, right? The, the 28 point something days of each month. And these two systems coexist in Judaism, which is maybe for us is something that is kind of obvious, but it is not obvious at all because. Christianity, as far as I understand, is based exclusively or almost exclusively on the solar system, whereas Islam is based exclusively on the lunar system. Judaism had to combine between the two because otherwise all our festivals would shift, right? Because the, the, the lunar year is, is about 11 days shorter than the solar year. And we need to celebrate Passover, for example, Pesach, when it is the Chodesh Aviv, the month of um, spring. If we would depend only on the lunar uh, year, it would shift uh, very quickly and, and we would celebrate it in different times. This is actually what happens in Islam when they have the holy month every year in a different uh, time of the year. And I know that my Muslim friends are always happy when it falls on on, on, on on the winter because then you have short days and, and the fast is right. short, you know, because they fast during the day. And they're not so happy when it falls in the summer. Right. And this year is a leap year where we add that second month of Adar to make right. the correction for the solar calendar. Exactly. And I love what you mentioned about the idea that only a free people gets to control its time. Yes. And that to be enslaved means that you don't get to control your time. It's determined for you. And the idea that the Holy One in creating the universe established that there should be this idea called holiness, that there should be a demarcation in time. So if we think about the word Kedusha or holiness, it's about being set aside, set apart from that which is whole or regular for elevated purpose right? or for transcendence. And in many ways, that's what a holy day, a holiday is designed to do, which is to figure out how we can fashion that transcendence. And so we create rituals that focus our attention to carve out that time to be special. And when I was learning a little bit about the role of ritual in Jewish life, I was introduced to a beautiful and loving debate between two remarkable thinkers, Martin Buber and Franz Rosenzweig. So Martin Buber, the German existentialist, had an idea that ritual and halakha, Jewish law, sort of would inhibit 
or be an obstacle to real authentic spiritual experience because you're always worried about how to do it, right? There's the it factor. Do I stand? Do I sit? Do I say this blessing first or that blessing first? Do I write the light candle or the left candle? And there's so much itness, he would say, around the ritual that the ritual itself becomes a problem. Whereas his friend and and companion and study partner, Franz Rosenzweig, said, no, ritual actually, when done right, is actually a catalyst to spiritual experience, not an inhibitor. And so my question is, as someone who has studied ritual so carefully, what makes a ritual work? What is it about a ritual that helps drive spiritual experience? Quite a few people think that uh, having a set ritual, uh, something that you do every day or every week or every year, uh, hinders the true innermost felt kavana, spirituality or intentionality, or this very unique thing that we don't have words to describe. I think... Unlike other religions, Judaism gives us a a set of rituals and a set of texts that we're supposed to do. We as as liberal Jews believe that it's an open system. It's not like, you know, you can can always add and you can always change. But I am a great uh, advocate for for the set rituals because I think sometimes... When you know what you're doing, you know, because if you, it's true, if you go to the synagogue for the first uh, few times, you are very confused when, as you said, when to sit down, when to stand up, all these things. But when you have the habit within you and when you kind of know where you are in the text, it frees your spirit and it frees your mind to really be in the experience, in the chavaya. In German, they call it the erlebnis, yeah, the the really the, the the thing that we don't really know how to explain, but this is their religious experience. I think ritual helps you, or can you know if it's a good ritual and if it's done well, it can help you reach that 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 level of kavana, as, as we call it, yeah, intentionality, or or being close to to your heart, being close to God, being close to the community, being close to the to your ancestors, you know, being in that moment of, of being connected with so many things. I think that sometimes when we try to invent uh, rituals uh, that are completely new, that's that can be beautiful and interesting, but sometimes it can be kind of out of um, context or out of touch, especially these days, Rabbi Levine, I can tell you that in Israel, we are dealing with these issues in a very prominent way. Uh, my students at HUC, some of them tell me, Rabbi Marx, we can't pray as we used to pray because things are so difficult and we cannot have a kavana. We need something completely different. And they create uh, rituals that are completely different from what uh, what we normally have, like the more normal daily weekday uh, morning service. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't work. And a lot of students like it, but I would say more students feel comfort and, you know, consolation when they have the text they know and they can kind of allow themselves to be carried on the wings of of prayer instead of being in the moment and having to, to create something new or to to address something new or to respond to something they didn't didn't know. So I think even especially 
in these difficult days that we are facing here in Israel, there is um, an aspect of consolation and comfort in what we call in Hebrew keva, the, the statutory or the, the fixed version of prayer. I'm talking about the text. What happens to you when you pray? What happens to the kehilah, to the community? That's, that's a different level. Yeah? That's a different way of connecting. Right. And in a way, if, if you know what you're doing, that allows you to be free from, from all these constraints, I would say. Right. So part of what it sounds like makes a ritual work sometimes is familiarity. Right. That I know what to expect. I know what I'm doing. It's comforting and familiar. Right. At the same time, there are moments when a ritual doesn't meet the moment. So, you know, I think about so many people that don't avail themselves a ritual in their life because they find the ritual alienating. They don't really know why they're doing what they're doing. They don't understand the meaning or purpose behind the different traditions that they follow, or they find them to be in some ways inauthentic. How do you get beyond that? How do you remove those barriers? What makes a ritual more authentic? How do you create that more meaningful spiritual encounter? Instead of answering you with my own words, let me cite one of our greatest poets, Hebrew poets. It's Chaim Nachman Bialik. And I have his words in my book, actually, in From Time to Time. This is a really interesting thing, you know, when, when, when the new uh, immigrants to Israel came in the beginning of the 20th century, they were very well, well immersed in, in Jewish ritual, but they didn't really like what they remembered from back home. They wanted to create something new. They felt that they are the new Jews, right? They don't want to be the Jew who stands in the house of study all days, afraid from pogroms. And they wanted to be, you know, connected to the land and be new. And they didn't know how to celebrate the festivals. So a few weeks before Passover, kibbutz member uh, writes a letter to, um, to Chaim Nachman Bialik and he says to him, how should we celebrate Pesach? And this is what he says to him. It is impossible to put a holiday or a holiday ceremony in order. Real, reliable ce celebration comes from the heart and comes into this world with divine inspiration. If it doesn't have these, what long-distance advice can be useful? My advice to you is the following, says Bialik to this kibbutz member from Ganigar who asked him this question. Celebrate your ancestral festivals, the festivals of our ancestors, and add to them something of your own, according to your own ability, taste, and condition. The important thing is that you do everything wholeheartedly, and that with a sense of life emotions, spiritual need, without overthinking it. That was his advice to the new, to the young kibbutz members in the, uh, in the land of Israel, you know, before the establishment of the state of Israel. This is how we should celebrate our festivals. So it reminds me a little bit of something I learned from Rabbi Lawrence Kushner, who talked about prayer almost like an actor who's reciting lines from a script, right? So the actor is on stage and is reciting lines and words that somebody else wrote for a character that he or she is supposed to inhabit. 
And when the actor recites the lines, they become that other person. Mm -hmm. And it's when they become that other person that those words kind of come to life because they're seeing the world through the lens of this other person's experience. They become that person. They don't stay that person. Eventually, the play is over and they change out of their costume and they go home. But for that moment, they are that other person and they have to feel that other person's feelings. They have to see what that other person sees. And in many ways, he said, that's like what it is to pray traditional liturgy, that we have to get in the head of the person who was trying to describe their experience of God in this way. But sometimes those words don't work. And so part of what I've always loved about about liberal Judaism is the fact that we can try to adapt the words to what fits for us, or we can adapt the musical modes to what fits for us in our modern context. So organ music from the 19th century kind of doesn't work for us anymore. Right. And so new compositions with new musical expressions with different instrumentation help us to express those ancient ideas of wanting to appreciate creation or uh, acknowledge the gift of Torah or to celebrate our redemption or to focus on the core values and principles that that animate us. And so I think that part of what makes a ritual work and why I was so struck by your book is how it draws on not just ancient themes, but modern themes and expressions through the lens of how we inhabit and look at each month. Right. I, I think that what you say is, is absolutely, absolutely, I completely agree with you. I think it's not just being in a drama. It's it's really taking the drama and make it my own vision. This is how I see the world. I see the world, Jews understand their existence, not so much by halachic means, I think, or by theological concepts. They understood their existence via the lens of the liturgy. Yeah, the, lens, the liturgy becomes your inner language. That's how you approach the world. You believe that uh, we were redeemed from Egypt and you will be redeemed in the future. That's about traditional language. But as you said, some of the text in traditional liturgy does not apply to us anymore, not only because of stylistic, that's the style has changed, but because we, we cannot say some of these things. Some of these things are to us abomin an abomination, right? Can, can you imagine a, a, a liberal Jew who's to say, thank you, God, yeah, blessed are you, O God, who did not create me a woman or who did not create me a Gentile? These things are for us... Uh, very difficult. We had to change them and we had to revise them. We had to make them suitable to what we want to say to God today. And we hear today, today in Israel, I see how words of hate, some of the hateful language, some of the call for their revenge is used by right-wing, some of the right-wing people as uh, as contemporary uh, issues and and uh, and I think you're you're completely right there's always a tension between the ancient sources the traditional sources and our experience now what we what we, how do we deal with our current situation so I said to you before that I think that for many of my students the traditional liturgy is a comfort, but they also create a lot of new prayers to address the new situation. We have a host of new prayers. I collected 
220 prayers that were composed in the last since October 7th. Yeah, a lot of people write prayers. What are those prayers conveying? Because I imagine I, I, you know, I was in Israel uh, at the end of November for a few days, and having been there, there's this heaviness. Yes, there's this sense of of dread and mourning and grief and worry and anguish and anger. And I mean, it, it's just so heavy there. And I can imagine that that may have dissipated some, but not entirely. What somebody said to me was, you might look at your calendar and see a date in January or February, and we see October 8th every day. Right. That's true. And so I wonder, what does it mean to like celebrate Shabbat? While so many are at war, what's it like to celebrate a holy day in the midst of such a tenuous time? Well, on one hand, it's very difficult. A lot of people, including some of my students, haven't been home for the last three and a half months. Uh, Some of our students are uh, in the war fighting. Uh, They occasionally have a chance to come and visit us, but, uh, you know, at HUC, but uh, most of them are you know, in the war. And then you have, Israel is a small country. Everybody knows uh, families of soldiers who were killed, families of people who were murdered in October 7th, uh, families of uh, hostages. So the the feeling is very, very heavy. I don't think it, it, uh, it, it has elevated at all. If anything else, if anything at all, it's, it became... Um, even darker, even more more difficult than it was um, two months ago, I would say. And I think, in a way, the 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 prayer, worship, ritual opens as gates to cope with these issues. This is a coping device for us to deal with it. And if you ask me how Shabbat looks like and how festival looks like, I would say like a great comfort, because no matter what, with this very chaotic and scary and sad situation, we know that Shabbat will always come. Yes, sunrise, sunset, said Tavia, right? We know that the nature continues its, its, uh, its course. We know that the festivals will come. We deal with them somewhat differently. We insert into them new meanings or new hopes um, but, but in that sense, the year cycle, and that's what I try to convey in my book, is a great comfort. Yeah, we just celebrated Tubishvat, which is the new year for the trees. Um, who had who had uh, who was in the mood to celebrate? <laughs> so it, it wasn't a very happy celebration, but we thought about the concept of of ecology, of of environmentalism, of uh, our uh, you know duty as inhabitants of the world. And we use the situation, we used it to ponder, to contemplate on the situation where we're now. The next big celebration, next big festival that we're facing will be Purim. Yeah, and in Purim, yeah, there's some, you know, it's it's a celebration of uh, joy and happiness and and, uh, even frivolous a little bit uh, acts. Who's in a mood to be happy? So hopefully by then all the hostages will be home and the war will be over and etc. But I think it's a good coping device or a, a very good, a very efficacious means to deal with our experience. Yeah, the festivals and the holidays and the memorial days, the ancient ones and the modern ones and the liturgy 
all of these things kind of give us, as I said, anchors in this uh, unprecedented reality that we're facing. I don't want to compare, but but uh, you know this you know no comparison. But in, in even in the Holocaust, we know we have many testimonies that Jews. Um, found Shabbat and found the celebrations of the festivals as something that gave them a lot of comfort. And I think that part of what gives comfort is not simply tradition, right? That regularity, that familiarity, but also that sense of in the midst of this ugliness, I'm going to fashion something beautiful. Right. In the midst of a time when everything around me seems profane, I'm going to bring some holiness to that. And also I think rituals can sometimes help you to recast things that you experienced with a holy light. So when I was in Israel at the end of November, we spent part of a day at a produce processing plant helping to prepare heads of lettuce for packaging. Because at this plant, they typically have 60 people working. The day we were there, there were 14. And the lettuce that we were preparing, and I don't have a lot of experience preparing heads of lettuce to be told, was they were wilted. It wasn't fresh because there just weren't people around to be able to process these things in a way that they could be fresh like we're used to. And I know that so many Israelis and volunteers coming to Israel are spending a lot of time in the fields harvesting various different kinds of produce that they typically would only buy at the market. But this year, they were actually out in the fields getting their hands muddy and cut and dirty, bringing the that produce out of the field. And I can imagine for them, Tubishvat had a completely different resonance this year as they were thinking about the gift of ecology and how great that we had a ritual to say, hey, you know that thing that you did for a few weeks while you were down in the fields in Otef Aza in the Gaza envelope? That's Dubashvat, right? That's what we're supposed to be focused on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I imagine that that recasting of ritual has been part of Israeli experience since the war. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. It's a, I would say that it's not just the content of the festival, it's, it's the festivals as vessels that then enable us to think about, uh, about our existence. So, for example, in Hanukkah, right? What is the most well-known song for Hanukkah that you sing in all the ethnic groups in Judaism? It's Maus Suryashuati, right? Which talks about the Jewish salvation from from enemies. Yeah, we normally sing one verse or two that talks about the the story of Hanukkah, but there's actually another five verses that talk about the salvation from, from in the time of Purim and and the Babylonian. Uh, conquer and all that and a lot and, and there were quite a few people who added another verse to the song to deal with our situation now so you can see that just as people who pick up lettuce and think about wow my connection to the land and Tubishvat feels differently now to me lighting Hanukkah candles may mean something else to me now Pesach will mean something else what does it mean Pesach what does it mean to talk about redemption what does it mean to talk about freedom what does it mean to, to get out of, of slavery? All, all, all these uh, topics kind of give you framework of, of thinking or con- contemplating, reflecting on your own being or on your own experience. And I find it very helpful. The ritual becomes a vehicle to sanctify what's happening in your life 
as it goes. Exactly. So this year for Hanukkah, lighting candles and talking about light in the darkness had a completely different resonance than in, in other years that are less fraught with pain. As I'm thinking about Purim and a celebration of Jewish survival, right, that's taking on a different meaning and, and, and valence. As I think about Passover coming up, I think about what is liberation. Exactly. And at the same time, all of the different rituals in Passover that demand that we not celebrate the suffering of our enemies, even though that's what we need for our own liberation and all of the different ways in which that's a complicated thing to do at this time as well. You wrote in your book something really kind of interesting. You wrote this. You wrote, we are times captive, sometimes embraced by it closely, sometimes held more loosely. Time. Sometimes it flies. Sometimes it moves along slowly. Sometimes it actually comes to a halt. That is, of course, how we sense it. Time is relative. Different people perceive it differently. We are times captive, but sometimes time is our captive, up to a point at least. We try to transcend that point by stuffing an infinite number of activities into every minute of every hour of the day. It sometimes seems that all human activity is a war against time. So tell me a little bit about that war. How is human activity a war against time? Is, is time an enemy, a friend? What are we fighting against in our war against time? And what are we fighting for? Right. I, I think sometimes time is, is, is an enemy, but many times, as we, as we said before, time is also a friend or time is also a helping aid, knowing that, yes, you are in a very difficult situation right now, but time passes or we pass through time, depends on your perspective, right? Maybe time stands and we pass through time. But what I try to um, to communicate in this uh, paragraph that you read so beautifully is that time is very relative. It can be our enemy and it can be our friend. It makes me think of Alice in Wonderland. I wanted to include a passage, but it, it doesn't work in Hebrew, so I gave it up. But, you know, in the, in the med tea party, uh, I think that the Mad Hatter asks Alice, uh, what do you know about time? And, and they say to her, time is not what is time. Time is who is time. There's Mr. Time. And if you treat uh, Mr. Time kindly, he will treat you kindly back. Something like this. I'm not sure about the actual wording. But time is something that we are uh, in, in constant conversation with. Uh, how, how do we deal with our time? How do we spend our time? What is the best way? To, uh, to explore time and to, to, to do, you know, everyone, we all know what time is, but nobody really understands. That came out beautifully in, the, in your introduction to, to our conversation. Do we really understand how time works and how it is that sometimes time, sometimes time feels as if it's flying and sometimes time feels that it's standing? And why is it that we're, when we're children, a year seems like a very long time? And for us, as we grow up, it, it feels some, as something that moves so fast. All these things are, I think, it's a great mystery that we're dealing with. And it kind of brings you back to something you opened with. You spoke about, you, you cited the Heschels. Abraham Joshua Heschels was one of our great thinkers of the 20th century, who spoke about the centrality of time, right? And I think time is central in as far as I know, in all cultures that I can, I, I, that I know of, but maybe it is especially special or especially central in Judaism, 
because Jews were wandering, migrating, often uh, expelled from there, from where they were. Often they could not be sure or be safe that they will remain where they are. I think that's one of the great reasons that Zionism seemed so important. Uh, but time was always there, says Heschel. Time was always on our, on our side. Uh, that's why I don't think it's always an enemy. Time is the, is, is, is the uh, major or the central means through which we understand our lives and uh, contemplate on our beings. Yeah, so he speaks about cathedrals in time. You know, Shabbat is a cathedral in time that even our greatest enemies could not uh, destroy. Uh, he was criticized, of course, because he kind of took the, the concept of space out of the equation. And this is what uh, Zionism tried to restore, right? It's not just about time, but it's about place. But I found it as, as a miracle. I don't know if anybody could re- can really explain how Judaism remained a people throughout so many centuries where Jews were not, were all over the place. You know, they were not in one place. They didn't meet each other. They had different languages. They had different customs. But they remained the people. And what kept them as a people is the notion of time, right? It's, it's the notion that every seventh day is Shabbat. And every year we have Rosh Hashanah, the New Year Day, and exactly when it's going to take place. And, and Jews kept it voluntarily. Yeah, so that's what really kept us together. This and the hopes to, to come back to Jerusalem. I always tell my students, the fact that we pray in Hebrew in Jerusalem and the holy language is also our vernacular, it's uh, kind of obvious to us, but it's not obvious at all. Right. It was not obvious to my ancestors and it was not obvious to, I guess, your ancestors. The, f- the fact that we dwell in, in Israel is, is, uh, is, 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 not, is not obvious at all. But time is something that kept us together and text is something that kept us together. And I think that part of what it kept us together was that it kept reminding us of who we are. So my favorite petition of the first of the 13 petitions in the Shemona Esrei that we say during the week begins, right? You have graced humanity with awareness. And I think that the core crux of what a ritual does is it heightens awareness. Mm -hmm. So every week on Shabbat morning, I get to sit with a different family for some young man or woman's bar bat mitzvah. And... It's so amazing to watch the process, to see a parent see their child standing in a very adult place, wearing some very adult clothes, doing some very adult things, and expressing some very adult ideas is a mind-blowing experience because in the midst of all of the challenges of raising an adolescent, the miracle of that child sometimes eludes our gaze. A little bit. But when you have a chance to say, wow, look at that, and you grow in your awareness of the miracle of how a human being evolves, it's mind blowing. And similarly, Shabbat, in the midst of all of the things that are going on and trying to figure out how do you get work done and how do you take care of the house and how do you take care of all the chores and how do you manage all of the tsuris and everything, and that's when there isn't major tsuris. God forbid there should be other major things going on, an illness or a broken home or a business that's failing or whatever it might be. 
right? And you have this day that says, wait a minute, set it all aside. This whole gift of life is a miracle. And the fact that we can think about the higher and holier purposes for what life is about. It's not just about house, car, clothes, food, stuff. It's about life and love and knowledge and wisdom and justice and compassion and freedom and peace. And to be able to develop awareness of that elevates the experience of what it is to be a Jew. And I think about, you know, all of the generations of Jews that clawed for Shabbat, they would save up all week long, maybe so they could have a chicken, right? That would try to have some way of elevating that day that will remind them that even though six days they are being beaten to a pulp by life because it was so hard just to get through the week. But on Shabbat, you're reminded you're a prince, right? You're royalty. God created you in God's own image, you are a partner with the Holy One in fashioning the universe. And you're reminded, yes, I'm a mensch, right? I'm a human being. She's an Eshet Chayel, right? That we need to use the tradition to restore our humanity. I think sometimes we lose sight of how powerful ritual can be and what happens to ourselves when we don't avail ourselves of that ritual and we don't try to heighten our awareness of what is the spiritual power of human existence. I, I really like the two examples that you brought because they belong to two separate worlds, as it were, when you think about time. The first one with the bar mitzvah, a child coming, or bat mitzvah, child coming of an age, becoming an adult Jew pretty early on, right? They continue to be children, right? there. And the second one is Shabbat. One has to do with what we sometimes refer to as year cycle, year, uh, sorry, life cycle events, which is not a cycle, it's a linear time yeah we, we we begin our life at a certain point and we have certain markers ar- ar- along the way and then until we we end our lives and even if you believe in resurrection or you know uh, the immortality of the soul whatever th- this life on this earth uh, begins at a certain point and ends with a certain point we are talking about most of our conversation and this is what my book deals with is is the circular time the time that that comes back every year, every year is gonna there's gonna be a summer and winter, and every year there's gonna be Rosh Hashanah and Pesach, and I think when you take these two systems together and you sort of collide them into one system, you know the the linear time and the circular time, you get a spiral, and that's our ex- experience in the world, right? Because think about think about yourself. Right, uh, Purim will come not so soon because, as you said before, we have a leap year this year. Every every time Purim comes, I'm sure you think about previous years where you were as a child. What is the first Purim you remember? What was your custom? You know, when what wh- where were you last year? What did you want last year about this year? Where do you want to be next year? Who was with you? Who's not with us anymore? So th- this this circular time, the time that repeats itself again and again and again, when it's combined with our own history, with our own linear pa- passage, uh, that's really what gives us the the human experience in it in its whole. So so I think. You gave two examples that really exemplify these two types of time that we are experiencing. And I also love how those rituals convey a value system. You know, I always think about how the entirety of what we value as Jews is 
buttoned up in one ritual like on Passover. So we celebrate Passover with the people that we love. We have four cups of wine where we say l'chaim, right? Where we talk about life. We have rituals that teach us about the importance of knowledge and wisdom. It sort of takes all of the value system of Judaism in one ritual. Right. It's like it's like a drop of uh, a drop of rain that encapsulates the entire world in it. And and as you said, a, 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 cert, a certain ritual encapsulates all our values and thought and our, the way we deal with our history and our ancestors and and belief and fears and everything is encapsulated in each one of these uh, rituals. I I completely agree with this view. Thank you. It's beautiful. And I love to see how Passover evolves to capture new realities and new truths in addition to the ancient truths. So in the sense that, you know, we have, you know, we take our finger and we remove wine from our cups for each of the plagues and we recount the symbols on the Seder plate. And then, of course, in modern times, many of us put an orange on our Seder plate to remind us that just like someone said, an orange belongs on the Seder plate as much as a woman belongs in the Bema. We said, exactly. Right. So now we have little rituals to remind us of modern values as we've evolved and understand in addition to the ancient ones. Right. I, I collected quite a few of these uh, women-related rituals uh, regarding Pesach. Some of them are new, like the orange uh, story, and some of them are actually ancient. Some of our ancient rabbis had interesting um, ideas that we don't always remember. And I, I felt uh, the need to sort of give them a, a place because that's what I try to do in this book, to sort of give voice to the those who normally did not have a voice. Yeah, and, and, and women are, of course, uh, is probably the greatest minority in Judaism, right? Right. But you originally wrote your book for an Israeli audience. And now it's been shared across languages and now in the United States. What were you trying to say to Israelis about consecrating time, about finding observance and meaning in the Jewish calendar? And is that a different message that you would give to Americans or is it really a universal message? I think much of it is is uh, universal, but I think different cultures have different uh, views on things. I think here in Israel, we have a lot to learn from you in North America about diversity and about inclusivity and about how we should give place around the table for many voices. Yeah, this is what I hear from my friends and colleagues in, in the United States. This is not always what we hear in Israel. It's first and foremost, as we said before, about the inclusion of women. Uh, right, women had very rich uh, rituals and traditions. The only problem was that they were all oral. Yeah, almost of them, all, almost all of them were oral. They were not written down, and with the trials and tribulations of immigration and and and, and the melting pot uh, policy in the early years of Israel, a lot of it was forgotten. So I think it's today it's our job, our duty to remember uh, what was in the past, to, to collect all these uh, roots that were cut and separated from their, you know, and, and, and to renew these rituals. Uh, that's that's uh, what a lot of my students are doing. Sometimes they have to go to their grand, grandmothers, not so much their parents, because their parents wanted just to be Israelis. 
their grandmother. I, I, I bring a story from, from a student of mine, who uh, Rabbi Rinat Svania, who did a work on the Mimuna, which is a Moroccan festival that is celebrated at the end of Pesach. She went to her mother and said, you know, mom, how do we celebrate Mimuna? Right? And she said, oh, we, we don't celebrate Mimuna. She went to her grandmother and her grandmother told her how to, told her how to do it and how to really prepare it in a way that is uh, beautiful and, 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 and welcoming. So I think that's that's one thing that we in Israel can learn uh, from you. Yes, how to be uh, more diverse and how to give voice to different voices. Obviously, there's things in the English version and also the German and the Spanish version that we had to explain more, right? In Israel, when you say kibbutz, you don't need to explain it. I don't think you need to explain it in English too. But, uh, you know, in case someone who doesn't know exactly what a kibbutz, we, we, we gave a little explanation. There is a glossary at the end of the, of the book. But it also works the other way around. You know, there's a chapter uh, on Hanukkah that deals with, with the, the December dilemma. Israelis don't know it. They, they're, they're not exposed to it. They don't know that there is a 25th of the month of Kislev, but there's also the 25th of the month of uh, uh, December, right? And I had to explain more to, to Israelis where I didn't have to explain much in English. There were also some other additions in the English version because, um, because of COVID, for example. We included some COVID-related uh, material, uh, so, so basically, it's the same, but in some places we made the changes, we added some stuff, we changed some, some, some things, but basically it's the same thing. What, what my aim was in this book was to, to bring many voices, right? Judaism is not a uni, what's the word I'm looking for? Uni, uni voice. Did I make up a word now? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's not monolithic, right? It's not monolithic. That's what I wanted to say. Judaism is not monolithic. It has many voices in different ethnic groups in the East and in the West and in different communities. There is a lot of it. I don't think that American Jews need to be... To, I think they know it, yeah. But in Israel, it's not really the case. And uh, especially in the last years with some politicians who are pushing it, uh, we have the discourse of the identities as they, as they call it here, that if you have an identity and it's not mine, in and of itself, by definition, you are a threat and I have to destroy you, right? And I wanted to say, no, there's room for everyone. We can learn from each other. We can learn from Ethiopian Jews. We can learn from Moroccan Jews. We can learn from German Jews. There's so much to go around. Look at the richness. That's what I try to do in this book. And especially to give voice to those who were not heard before. The book is called From Time to Time, Journeys in the Jewish Calendar. It is available from CCAR Press. Rabbi Dahlia Marks, thank you so very much. I want to just conclude with the blessing that you concluded your book with. May we be privileged to walk along the path of time over and over for many long years. May it be that the years that await us be blessed and good years free of envy and malice and suffused with joy and laughter, good health of body and mind, creativity, growth, and love. Thanks so much for being with us today. The Essential Questions podcast has been made possible by the Temple Beth El Jewish Ideas Incubator, committed to creativity and innovation in modern Jewish life. Many thanks to our production team, Jason Reeser, Amanda Brenzel, and Susan Stallone. You can find this podcast on Apple Music, Spotify, and the Podbean app. 
as well as on Temple Bethel's website, tbeboca.org slash essential questions. Share this podcast with your friends. Rate us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to spread the word. And we want to know what are your essential questions. Let us know by emailing us at eq at tbeboca.org. I'm Rabbi Dan Levin, and thanks for listening to the Essential Questions podcast.